If you would find your place in Philippians chapter 2, we are going to have a mini milestone achieved today. This is the last time we will be in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 25. The Apostle Paul from Rome writes this. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Today we bring to close the second chapter of Philippians and our third character study here. And it's been a good journey. I trust it has been for you. It certainly has been for me. Several weeks ago, we commenced the series on Epaphroditus, a devoted servant. And we already looked at his designations found there in verse 25 as brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger and minister. Today we look at the final points in our text which relate to his desire, his distress and then finally his devotion. And so I'd uh, encourage you to follow along in your Bibles as we consider the final episode of Epaphroditus, a devoted servant part three. Lord, as always, I turn my attention towards you before preaching, uh, Lord, uh, not out of routine or religion, but because the reality of the circumstance is that nothing of any great spiritual worth can ever be accomplished without you strengthening and enabling and equipping for such a task as this. And so, Lord, again this morning, I express my dependence upon you and ask that the Spirit would take each word and use them uh, mightily in each life, uh, Lord, in mine, in each of ours. As a local body this morning, may we learn from this man, Epaphroditus. May you make application as you see fit into every life uh, and that uh, we would be able to cover all that's before us today uh, well, easily. Uh, Lord, that it would be divided accurately for the people uh, and that in all things you would be honoured and glorified. We commit our time in your word now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking first of all at this matter of Epaphroditus, the devoted servant, as it relates to his desire. Uh, If you look in verse 26, we note the following. The Apostle Paul says, for he, Epaphroditus, has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, let's not forget for a moment, it's been a few weeks, but Epaphroditus is a, uh, a member, and I don't mean a member in modern sense, but a member of the church at Philippi. He has traversed between six Uh, weeks and three months worth of uh, area to get to where the Apostle Paul is. He's gone through dangers. He's gone through all kinds of things. You remember a little bit about this man, Epaphroditus. He is a dedicated, devoted individual and he has arrived in Rome and the Apostle Paul writes this information which is going to then be communicated back to the church at Philippi, which is what we have in front of us here. That's who this Epaphroditus is. And we note his desire in verse 
26. He has been longing for you all. His desire. A careful analysis of this phrase is really important. So please note as you read along, notice what I'm suggesting here. He has been longing for you all, in our ESV translation, gives us real insight into the heart of this man Epaphroditus. And I want to show you how that's the case. First of all, a couple of observations for us. Let me define this word longing for. It is a Greek word, a compound word in the Greek. And it means to yearn for something. has the idea of uh, intensely craving to be inclined towards with fervent tenderness. What's very helpful for us to do is look at that same word in different locations in the scripture. Such a location is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. If you're quick, please turn with me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 8. We are dealing here with the Apostle Paul who is desiring earnestly to be clothed with his new body. And some of us in the room would say, we cannot wait for our new body. We cannot wait for it. And this is the same yearning and desire that we find in the Apostle Paul uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We would rather be. In actual fact, what he's saying here is we are yearning. We are so wanting and desirous for our new body in Christ, the Apostle Paul says. Same word used uh, here in Philippians and chapter 2, this yearning and desire. In fact, if you take your Bibles, we won't do it now, but if you were to go to Psalm 42, you would read about as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for thee, O God. You remember that passage? That word pants, that the deer pants for water, is the same translation of that same Greek word, even though it's in the Old Testament. Uh, when you take a book called the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, you find it's exactly the same word in Psalm 42 as the one used here in Philippians. As the deer pets, I'm longing for. This is what Epaphroditus is saying when he says, I have been longing for you all at Philippi. He's had this yearning in his heart towards his own people back in Philippi, towards his local church. And so that's the definition really quickly. I want to give you a second observation here, and uh, I've called it the present perfect continuous. Let me explain what I mean by that. The words has been longing denote an action commenced in the past. Happened in the past, it started in the past, but it continues through to the present. He has, in the past, been longing. So way back here, he began longing for the church at Philippi, but it continues all the way through to the present. Okay, And in the Greek, we talk about the present perfect continuous. It's an ongoing feeling in the life of Epaphroditus. Here's what this means. It means that Epaphroditus, since he left Philippi back here, and now that he's travelled all these miles, and now he's in Rome with the apostle, he's been sick, The whole way along, he has had this feeling of yearning and desire and just wanting to be with his home church. It's a feeling of passion and love and tenderness right throughout his journeyings. Now, we might at this point say, what's the point? You're going into a bit of detail. You'll see in just a moment. The present perfect continuous tense. That's the observation number two. Third observation I want you to note, first of all, in his desire is a comprehensive longing. 
I want you to note the word all. He has been longing for you all. Epaphroditus is not partial or discriminatory towards any members of his church in Philippi. His desire, his love, his affection is extended to every individual. Here's where we're going. In case you're wondering. Observation, first observation, the definition is that he's yearning. When did it begin? It began the moment he left Philippi. He had this great desire to stay and be with them and loves his church. Right through all his journeys, he's thinking of Philippi, he's thinking of his fellow believers. Right through to Rome while he's sick and things aren't going the way he would like them to go. He's thinking back here of his church in Philippi. And then we find that he's not just thinking of some of them. He hasn't got a few favourites that he's thinking of. You know, pastor this guy and elder this guy and deacon this guy because all of those are at Philippi. The uh, the uh, elders and the deacons we read in verse 1. He hasn't got any favourites. He's longing for them all and he has this yearning, his desire. You say, what's the point? The point is this. This man loves the Lord. This man loves serving the Lord, is on a mission for the Lord from his church. It's all been done the way the scripture wants it to be done. The church are in unity about all of this. And here is Epaphroditus who has an incredible love and desire, present, continuous for all of his home church. How about us? How about our desire? How about our love for our local church? How about the times when we are unable to be uh, here because maybe we're away or maybe we are, uh, maybe we're unwell or, or maybe the Lord has put us somewhere else for a portion of time, but as a part of a local assembly, does your desire and your love and your sincerity and your zeal, is it an echo of Epaphroditus? Is it something that you say, I just, I just miss this group. I miss that church. I miss these people. I love those group of people because when we talk about church, when we talk about what church really is, this we see in the life of Epaphroditus. What an incredible love. What an incredible uh, statement about his heart towards his church. And the question is, do we operate the same way? Do we have an earnest desire and an affection and a concern for our own local assembly. Oh, we're concerned with our own finances. We're concerned with our families. We're concerned with our motor vehicles and the services we need to have done on them. We're concerned about depositing that uh, that money that's been given to us. We're concerned about what we're going to wear. We're concerned about Christmas gifts. We're concerned about all kinds of things. But let me ask us, do we have a genuine zeal and an affection for one another so that we would be just like this man, Epaphroditus? There's a need. I want to meet it. I, I just love God's local church that he's put me in. When you are unable to attend and be with Your spiritual family, does your heart yearn for them? The King James uses the the phrase bowels of compassion, dealing with an inward moving towards another person. Do we have bowels of compassion towards one another? Do we have favourites? Do we operate with unbiased love like Epaphroditus? Or do we make distinction between those that we love and those that we like? Um, The church... His family. And we've talked about this many, many times. Are there persons in this assembly that you would avoid? Are there those you would say, well, if they sat there, I'm not going to sit next to them. Uh, His desire is very clear in the text. He loves his church. He loves to be with God's people. Uh, Sadly, we live in a spiritual climate where 
Today, I've mentioned this so many times, the church is not a family, it's like a, an incorporated body and we do this out of ritual and routine and I hope that's not true for us. This, is, this man understood family, this man understood what church was. I wonder if that is your same desire. And so we note his desire, he's been longing for you all at Philippi. But notice in verse 26 also, which leads straight into our second point, that is this, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. We notice his desire, but we also note his distress. I find this an interesting and incredibly interesting little phrase here. In reading this text, we read that Epaphroditus has been really sick, so sick that he almost died. We're talking about close to fatality situation here. This was not just a little cold. He didn't just have the sniffles. Epaphroditus had a serious problem here that well, easily well could have uh, ended him in death. And in reading this text, we might think that Epaphroditus's distress has come about as a result of his physical sickness. Now, some of us get pretty distressed, don't we, when we're sick? Some of us get, you know, are pretty worried about our own circumstances and we would not be surprised if Epaphroditus was a little bit concerned about his own welfare. But what does the text say? He has been longing for you all, has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, he's not distressed because he's homesick. He's not distressed because the pressures of service and ministry are just too much for him to handle. Not at all. When we carefully read the text, we find that Epaphroditus was distressed because he was aware that the Philippians had been told about his sickness and they were concerned for his physical well-being. So put it another way, Epaphroditus was distressed because they were distressed. Here is this man who is sick, nearly on his, he's almost dead, he's on his deathbed, most would have suggested at this point, and instead of thinking, oh, woe is me, here's my situation, this is not fair, this is not right, he's concerned about home church Philippi over there, because they're concerned about him. What a man! Gives you a real insight into his heart. An incredible relationship seems to exist between this servant of the Lord and his home church. But then, that's an interesting little thought, but let's, let's define the word distressed. And this will be uh, an interesting insight for you. This is only used three times in the whole Bible, this word distressed. One here in Philippians, and the other two may be surprising to you. The only other place where this word distressed is used refers to the heaviness of Christ's soul in the Garden of Gethsemane. The only other time the word distressed is used in the whole Bible, both occasions are in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the Lord Jesus goes, a stone's throw away from his disciples, and he begins to pray. And the Bible says that he was in great distress. That is, that he was in heaviness of soul. So, how distressed was Epaphroditus? If we want to make comparison here, he's fairly distressed. But his distress is not about himself. His distress is about his fellow believers who are concerned for him. He was greatly troubled. He was even in anguish knowing that his church was concerned for him. He didn't want them to grieve for him or be anxious. And by the way, we need to note, this is not pride on his part. He's not being proud. 
but a display of love and affection. And so noting his distress, I just want to give you three things about this man, Epaphroditus, that we see regarding his character because of what we've just looked at. First thing I want you to note here is that Epaphroditus was a man of selflessness. It's a man of selflessness. Talk about a devoted servant. This man was not concerned for himself at all. Um, have a look in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And no, we're not starting Philippians 2 again. Okay, we're, we're almost finished with Philippians 2. But Philippians 2 verses 1 to 3, look at what it says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Notice verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Is this not Epaphroditus right here? Is he not concerned with others? Is he not concerned with the distress happening in his home church about his sickness? He's concerned that that they might be concerned about him. What an incredible relationship exists in the church at Philippi here between this seven. He's a man of selflessness. Secondly, we note also as we look at this man, Epaphroditus, that he is a man of empathy. Empathy has well been described as being your hurt In my heart. That's a great description of empathy. I feel your hurt. You feel my hurt. That's empathy. It's not, oh, poor thing. That's sympathy. Empathy is what you have said. I'm truly burdened by that. And it's exactly what Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2 says. Bear one another's burdens. When you go throughout your week and you hear, if I may, and I don't want to point out uh, difficulties in each other's lives, but as, if you hear uh, in our group here that someone has a wrestle here, uh, maybe struggling, struggling with some, some eyesight, maybe struggling with uh, how you're feeling physically, maybe you're tired, maybe you've, maybe you've got uh, some problems with uh, chemotherapy coming up, maybe there's family issues, maybe there's all these other things going on in your life. The, the distance there is some people would say, oh, well, you poor thing, I'll pray for you. That's not empathy. Now, that's, that's pathetic, actually, in the, in the family of God. Empathy is truly, I care about your needs and I care that, that something's happening in your life and it burdens me and my, my heart is breaking for you. I'm not walking through that, but it's as if I am with you. That's what true empathy is about. And you know what? That only comes by means of the Spirit of God. Empathy is not something you can truly have in the world. There's a a form of pseudo-empathy in the world, but the church of Jesus Christ is to be known for empathy. Do you know why? Because in John, Jesus said to his disciples, by this you shall know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. What is love expressed? It's empathy. It is, I care for you so much. My love for you is that it's as though I have that problem and I want to help. How can I help? That's true empathy. This was a man who said, the distress you're feeling about my distress is in my heart. I'm distressed about you being distressed. But man, this keeps on going because there's such a family. I'm distressed because you're distressed and you're distressed because I'm distressed. And this isn't in a bad sense. This is, I have so much love and so much concern for you people at Philippi. Epaphroditus says, don't worry about me and don't worry about them. And you know how that happens in church when people actually operate with true love. It's an incredible thought. Oh, stop worrying about me. I'm fine. I can't stop worrying about you. I love you. Well, stop worrying. And that's true empathy. And it's not being worried or anxious in that we don't trust the Lord. It is truly loving one another. That's empathy. This was a man of empathy. We need to be men and women 
of empathy. The third thing we note about Epaphroditus in relationship to this distress, and I love this, he was a man who understood church. You say, what do you mean he understood church? I mean, for one, just to get on my hobby horse for just a moment, he didn't think it was a building. He didn't think church was a building. Here's what he understood. He understood what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, they all suffer together. He understood that. He said, he understood that, well, you're feeling my pain, I'm feeling your pain. I understand, I'm in this with you. It's not like, well, you're a distant, you're the arm over there, and I'm the foot, and I've got nothing to do with you whatsoever. Um, even though we're part of the same body, I don't feel any That's not what he, he understood church. Church is body. Church is the body dynamic, and as this finger hurts, and, and, and that, that part hurts, the whole thing hurts. That's the design that God put into place for the church. He understood church. Now, I could spend a lot of time on this particular one, but we're not going to because next year we're going to have a special focus on some of these things. I'm just giving you just a little unveiling of what's going to happen on Vision Sunday. But we're going to deal with what the church is and the body and how that operates and so forth. But here's a man who understood church. A man of selflessness, a man of empathy, and a man who understood church. And so we see his desire for them. We see his distress and the last thing we want to look at this morning is his devotion. His devotion. And we've got a number of sub-points. If you think, boy, he's going really fast this morning. That's amazing. He's really getting through these points. Yeah, you don't know how many sub-points I've got under this one. So just, just, yeah, don't get too excited just yet. Don't get up and start leaving just yet. His devotion. We note here, look in verse 27 and verse 30. This, to me, is just amazing. That's why we've called him a man of devotion. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, verse 27. Then look at verse 30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, if we don't read those in context, we might think he was just sick because he got sick. But it actually tells us in verse 30, he nearly died for the work of Christ. This man was not just doing his own thing. This was in the cause of Jesus Christ. That's how this came about. He was a devoted man. He nearly died in the process. So committed was he to fulfilling the ministry he was assigned to, the mission by his home church, that it almost brought about fatality. Let me insert a little comment here. Sadly, this attitude of Epaphroditus is in the for the most part the antithesis of what we see in modern church today let me explain what I mean some people will come up with things like well I couldn't come to worship with God's people today because I was really tired now please don't misunderstand I'm not having a dig about church attendance at all. What I am suggesting though is that in the modern church today we won't even get up out of bed on a Sunday in the general sense of church. I'm thankful you're here this morning. But you know what I'm saying? There is a total distance and a total difference today in what dedication and devotion to Christ really is as compared to here, isn't it? We look around today and, and there are people who um, wouldn't even get out of bed sometimes on a Sunday because, well, you know, it's a bit of effort. Takes a bit of time, takes a bit of energy, I can't do it. Now, please don't misunderstand. Hey, look, there are all sorts of physical maladies that come up, I understand that. But I'm talking about a willful decision of mine that, you know what, it's just not that important to me. 
That's a real sad situation, isn't it? When God's people don't want to be with God's people. Something's gone seriously wrong. I mean, you can't hold me back. I just love coming together on a Sunday and on a Monday and any other time because it's it's family. And sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's difficult and sometimes I've had a, a hard week and I'm tired and my body is weary. But you can't hold me back. Wild horses can't hold me back because I want to be with God's people. And that ought to be the attitude that pervades our thinking because this is family. This is church. This is a living organism instigated by Jesus Christ and this man says, nothing's going to hold me back. Nothing. No sickness, no possible fatality. Man, this, this is all for Jesus Christ. I want to do this. But yet what we see today in many places, in many churches, is that we won't get out of bed, we won't do a single thing, let alone traverse perilous miles to provide support for an apostle I may not even know. Here's a couple of things we note about Epaphroditus. Throughout his entire episode of illness, he remained concerned about two things, clearly from the text. He was concerned about the church back home. We've already looked at that. But he was also concerned about fulfilling the mission he was assigned to. Under no circumstances am I going to quit. Now, we don't know when this sickness began. We don't know if it began when he left Philippi and for for 6 to 12 weeks it was with him the whole way or when he got to Rome. We don't know any of that. But we know one thing. I am not giving up was Epaphroditus' position. I'm not giving in to this. It can kill me. That's fine. But I will not give up. I have got to transfer the money that God has given to the church at Philippi to give to the Apostle Paul. I've got to do this mission and I'm going to do it even if it kills me. Now you say, was that God's will for his life? Oh, yes, it was. He had come out of the church here, sent by the church, following God's pattern for church and being sent out, and off he went to deliver that which was his calling at that time. We don't know very much about the illness associated with Epaphroditus. In fact, it's a total mystery. We don't know what it is. The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us uh, if it was a, a fully physical ailment, whether there was other things involved. We have no idea. But we do know that during his time in Rome, it was a significant illness and that it was for a significant time. Under this matter of his devotion, I want to give you some sub points. And some of them come straight out of the text. Some of them are just uh, some topical thoughts for you to think about as we look at bringing to a close this series on Epaphroditus, the devoted servant. And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure why the Lord has put some of these in front of us this morning. Maybe it's for uh, someone specific today, I don't know. But notice a few things with me. First of all, sickness, physical ailments of any sort, does not necessitate divine punishment. Let me say that again. Sickness of any sort does not necessarily mean divine punishment. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. This week, I heard a false teacher say this, this week. It wasn't something that he said this week, but it was recorded and I watched it this week. This is what he said. It is not God's will for any to be sick. I believe that it is the plan of our Father that no believer should be sick, that every believer should live his life to full time and actually wear out if Jesus tarries, then fall asleep in Jesus. 
I state boldly that it is not the will of God, my father, that we should suffer with cancer and other dreaded diseases and reap pain and anguish. No, it, it, no, it's God's will that we should be healed. Hebrew word for that. Baloney. Some false teachers would have us believe, and I want to set the record straight this morning for a few moments, they would have us believe that the presence of sickness in the life of a Christian always denotes divine punishment for some secret sin. Whilst the Bible does teach that God may bring about physical ailments as a means of chastening, I'll show you that in a moment, It is a gross overstatement to assert that all sickness is punishment from God. It's horrendous teaching and I will fight it to my death. I want to give you three things real quickly here. Three origins or objectives of sickness. Some of you may be wrestling with some kind of sickness at the moment. I'm not sure. I don't know why the Lord's got me sharing some of these things with you. But I just want to really quickly give you the three objectives or origins of sickness in the life of a Christian. Number one, sickness can be directly from God and for God's glory. It can be. Prove it. Great. Here we go. We won't turn to them because of the sake of time. But Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11. I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because I remember years ago when a false teacher came to town and tried to take away Down syndrome from my sister, failed miserably, and uh, I was looking for verses in Scripture to prove the fact that God had orchestrated this as opposed to divine punishment. Here's what we came up with. Exodus 4.11 Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, says the Lord? So if uh, if there are those who are mute, deaf, seeing, blind or other ailments, it may well be a direct decision of God for his glory. We need to get that right. And you say, is there more proof than that? Well, in the life of the Lord Jesus, probably the greatest proof in all of history that this is a reality is in John chapter 11, where we meet the man Lazarus. Here's what happens in John chapter 11, verse 4. When Jesus heard that he was sick, we know he delayed. Remember, he delayed. I don't understand that. That's another day. This illness, the Bible says, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So let's just get the record right for a moment. Not every sickness is divine judgment on the believer. Now, some may well be, but here we clearly see that God was the originator of some sickness and it was for his glory. And he has not even revealed how or why he will be glorified, but he will be. That's one origin. Number two, another origin, directly from Satan, but permitted by God. Let me just get this right too, if I may. Uh, Satan can do nothing without God's approval. He has absolutely no right whatsoever unless God approves of that. And we see that because when it comes to that man Job in the Old Testament, you remember that story? It was God who instigated it. He said, have you considered my servant Job? And uh, Satan says, you put a hedge around him. No wonder he loves you. And God says, okay. You go. You can touch all that he has, but don't injure the man in any way, shape or form. God gave Satan permission, not the other way around. 
And so we note that there is sickness, there is ailments that come directly from Satan, but they are permitted by God. In Job 1.12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and we know that account. So that's the second thing. Directly from God and for his glory, directly from Satan, but permitted by God. The third one, which is what the false prophets love, is directly from God as chastening for sin. There is a sickness that is from God for sin. First Corinthians chapter 11. Remember when we gather around for the communion table and uh, the Bible tells us to examine ourselves, to make sure that between our soul and the Saviour, there's nothing there. Why? Well, this is why. Many of you are weak and ill and some have died because you have partaken from the table unworthily. You have not dealt and examined your own hearts. No doubt, there is a sickness that comes from the Lord that is chastening. But that's not the only reason that we have sickness. Because we might be tempted to say this. So, God, you ordained Epaphroditus to travel from Philippi to Rome and in that journey somewhere along the way, he was inflicted by this sickness that almost brought him about death. Now, the unsaved world would do this. They would say, God is a mean God. Why would God not protect this wonderful man who's doing his service? And the answer to that we say, for the glory of God. We don't know the answer to that question. Why did God permit sickness in the life? We don't know the answer to that question, but this we know, that it is always going to be for his own glory. And so we say this morning, if you are wrestling with some kind of sickness, if you are serving the Lord and you're devoted to the Lord and you love the Lord, just because of that, it's not an inoculation from sickness. Just because you love the Lord and you are committed to serving Him, doesn't mean everything is going to go rosy. That's the prosperity gospel. And we don't buy into that whatsoever. Joseph loved the Lord. Joseph was falsely accused with Potiphar's wife. He ended up in prison. And for years upon years, there he is. And finally, he catches a break, we might say humanly speaking, and yet the whole thing was God's plan. So what? This makes no sense. Well, in John chapter 11, the Lord Jesus is is told about Lazarus' sickness. He can just say, be healed and it's done. But in actual fact, he says, we're going to stay right here until this man dies. So what? From a human perspective, we would say, what is going on? Why? Is God not loving and tender? And Doesn't he love Lazarus? Isn't this the one in Bethany he used to go and see? When we look at it from a human perspective, we are always, uh, we have always cause to get it wrong because it's human vision as opposed to spiritual vision. This is why we must have our theology right. Whatever God does is for his glory and always good. So folks this morning, if there's something going on in your life and you say, you know, this doesn't make sense with my theology, well your theology is wrong then. Because the theology is this, God is always good. He will always do what is for his own glory and you are part of that and you have the privilege of being a stepping stone for his glory. We need to realise that just because you are devoted, just because you are committed. I found myself this week discouraged a couple of times and one of the things I felt a little bit like David and I'm ashamed to admit it, but I looked around and I thought, you know, um, just like David says, all these evildoers in the world, they're always prospering. Why do the evil men prosper? And I don't know if you found yourself in that position sometimes and I'm looking around, I'm reading the news and I'm, I'm seeing all these incredible things happening for these lost people who hate God, they're atheists and, and they're millionaires and they've got everything they could ever want. And then the Lord really sorted me out yesterday because I went down to Melbourne 
and uh, I was uh, with uh, some family members that I don't get to see very often. Uh, they're, they're Jewish, they're incredibly wealthy. Uh, Jessica and I walked through the house and it's like, whoa, don't touch anything. Like we're talking, we're talking, you know, wealth, wealth, wealth. And, uh, and, and, you know, they were telling me about all that they do and, you know, they spend six hours a day cleaning the windows in their house because there's that many windows. And I came back and I said, oh Lord, let them have it. They can have all of that. I don't want any of that. And suddenly I realized, hey, this is, uh, the, the evildoers may look like they're prospering. Oh man, I got something inside that's way better than anything here. And, and there, there, there are pillars and there, there's gold throughout the house. It's like, it's just incredible. And yet I was reminded again, hey, you've got nothing to be discussed. You've got God. Who wants gold? You've got God. But our focus can be so wrong. Can it not? Mine, mine is often, I'm sure yours is. And so we can look and say, Lord, I'm being committed. I'm being faithful. I'm, I'm doing what's right. Why? Why is this happening? And when we ask that question, we realise straight away our theology is wrong. We've got it wrong. We're not looking from God's perspective, we're looking from ours. And so it's very, very important that we understand that sickness and trial of any sort does not necessitate divine punishment. I don't know if I've got time for the rest of these, but we've got to finish Philippians chapter 2 today. Let me give you a quick sub-point, number 2 here. And we'll cover this some more later on. The absence of divine healing... By means of the apostle. Let me explain what I mean by that. The absence of divine healing by means of the apostle. Um, I want to just very briefly touch on a subject here that uh, might cause a bit of grief, but I'm going to have to fix it later on because I don't have time to sort it out now. Today there is a huge amount of controversy as it relates to the gift of healing. Let me say this, the gift of healing is in the Bible. There's no question about that. But here's something for you to think about. This is a prolonged sickness on the part of Epaphroditus here. He's in the presence of the Apostle Paul who has demonstrated the gift of healing in the past. And yet the Apostle does not heal him. We find in Timothy, Timothy has a real problem with his stomach. You remember that? And some people love this verse because it gives them all the rights to go and drink a whole bottle of whiskey. But... That's not what the Bible says at all. But anyway, that's, that's what we find people using this verse for. And they said, take a little wine for your stomach. It didn't say a whole pint, but anyway. He said, take a little wine for your stomach. Why didn't he heal him? Um, in due course, this next year, we're going, to be, we're going to be studying the spiritual gifts. So I'm just going to give you a quick flyover comment here um, that needs far more uh, information. And so I hope you'll be gracious about it. But here is something for you to note. Uh, suffice to say that Before us is an opportunity for the Apostle Paul to heal a fellow believer in Christ right there and then. But he doesn't. He doesn't heal him and he doesn't restore him, even though he's a desperately sick brother. Why doesn't he perform the miracle? One commentator says this. Epaphroditus' sickness proves that the Apostles had not ordinarily the permanent gift of miracles any more than that of inspiration. Both were vouchsafed to them only for each particular occasion as the Spirit thought fit. Here's what he means in another way of saying it. Uh, The gift of healing as we see today, may I say to us, is very, very unbiblical. 
Okay, And I would suggest to you that much of what happens today is not true healing. And I'll explain why later on in the year when we look at those gifts. But we find that when we look at the study of the gifts of healing and miracles and so forth, we find that those particular gifts were not always operational. They weren't happening all the time. There were times, and particularly we find that nowhere in Scripture do we find an apostle healing a fellow Christian. Ever. Not once in the Bible do you see that. The only thing you ever see is the the healing of an unsaved sick person for one reason, authenticating the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the point of it. And so we need to understand first and foremost here that the Apostle Paul did not heal Epaphroditus. And we have to ask the question, why? If he has the gift of healing, why didn't he just say, Epaphroditus, get up, you're sorted? There's a reason for that. And we're going to look at that some more in the new year when we study this matter of gifts. But I want you to note the absence of divine healing by means of the apostle. Strange phenomenon. Why did he not? I'll leave that with your consideration for today. The third thing I want you to note. I want you to note the great mercy of God. The great mercy of God. Uh, In our text here, indeed he was ill. Verse 27, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him but on me also i can't skip over this because how could i skip over the boundless mercy of god god has been so merciful to this man of pepper does he deserve to live do you do i Do any of us deserve to live? But yet again, the mercy of God is boundless and here he restores this this worker of his, this devoted servant to a place where he's able to continue serving and not just him. He prevents further sorrow in the life of the Apostle Paul. Has Paul seen a bit of sorrow? Oh, Paul's seen a lot of sorrow. And the Lord in his mercy recovers him. In recovering him, he's able to serve again. In recovering him, the Apostle Paul does not have sorrow upon sorrow. The Lord knows exactly what he needs to provide for people. And then also we find that the church at Philippi, the mercy for them, their servant Epaphroditus doesn't die and probably, more than likely, we don't know the whole story, but he returns back to Philippi and probably continues serving the Lord. Oh, the mercy of God. I want you to pause for a moment and I want you to think about God's mercy towards you. We can see it here. What about towards you? None of us deserve to be preserved. None of us. None of us have suffered as we should. Now, sometimes we've got some suffering in our life and we we have a bit of a pity party about it. We're all guilty of it. But in reality, none of us have suffered like we ought to. Oh, the mercy of God. None of us really have reason for complaint. We have received such kindness in the place of judgment. Love in spite of being God's enemies. Joy when we ought to be sorrowful. How merciful is our God? He is so merciful. The fourth thing I want you to note, second last before we finish this morning, as we relate to this devoted servant. I want you to notice in our text the importance of honouring those who are devoted. Let me show you what I mean. The Bible says here in verse 29, So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honour such men. The Bible makes it clear that those who serve the Lord faithfully and fervently are to be honoured. This is not to activate their pride, 
which is an ever-present danger, but it is to value and esteem those as those who are setting a good example to others. The Bible makes it very clear that that is true. The word honour means to prize or to esteem highly. It has the idea of valuing. And the Bible makes it clear that Christians are to honour various individuals and positions. Here are five for you, just to quickly note down. Romans 13, 1-7, the Bible says, we are to honour the governing authorities. Now, sometimes when you read the news, that's pretty hard to do, isn't it? I read some of the news last night, late at night, and uh, I had to confess the fact that, Lord, I'm not honouring as I ought to. I've got some slanderous thoughts about some of these people, but we are to honour them. The Bible says we're to honour, we're to esteem them highly, we're to pray for them, we're to serve and let them rule as they do, unless, of course, it denotes the fact that it is against the word of God. A lot of us want to change the word of God so that we don't have to follow their rulership. But in actual fact, we're told to. We are to honour and to love the governing authorities. The second thing we note in the scriptures as we look at honour is that double honour is reserved for elders who rule well. First Timothy 5.17, double honour is reserved for elders who rule well. Third thing, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, the Bible says, honour your parents. Honour your parents. Um, You never stop honouring them until the Lord takes them home. We are to honour parents all of our lives, even if they don't agree with us, even if uh, if maybe they're not saved, even if they have uh, other ideas about certain things, even if there's arguments that occur. The Bible says as a Christian, we are to display honour towards our parents. Uh, It's very, very important. Uh, And that is an incredible opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ, particularly if your parents are unsaved, um, to honour parents. By the way, honour in the Old Testament, when we talk about parents, wasn't just to say hello to them and give them a hug. It was to provide for them. It was to minister to them. It was to have them come into your home when they were no longer able to look after themselves. Honour is a really big thing in the scripture. The fourth thing. We are to esteem those who lead you and work for the Lord. Esteem highly those who lead you and work for the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. Those who are in leadership, those who are working for the Lord are to be esteemed highly. And it's very important that uh, that is understood. Uh, And it's very hard for me to say these things, as you can imagine, because I'm one of those ones who are to lead. And I'm not wanting you to all uh, gather around me later and carry me out on your shoulders. That's not what I'm talking about here. But the Bible does teach about esteeming and valuing highly what God has provided in a local assembly by way of leadership. Uh, And at this time in our local assembly, we have two of those people in leadership uh, as elders. And it is your responsibility to esteem highly those who serve and work for the Lord. But in case you think, well, this is just all about, you know, Daniel just wants to be looked after. No, no, no. Here's the number five. And this covers everything. First Peter 2 verse 17. Peter says, honour all. Oh, that just fixed everything. Honour all. We are to honour everyone. We're to esteem others. The idea here is in Philippians chapter 2. We are to just lift everybody else up in order that we would be lowered. We want to take a lower place. We want to serve so that others would be esteemed highly. Can you imagine what a church would look like if everybody was fighting about who's going to get the honour? Not in a bad way, in a good way. As in there's so many people on their knees wanting to wash each other's feet, there's nobody whose feet can be washed because we're all so busy wanting to serve one another. What a great place it would be to gather together when we've got people who are all about serving and honouring each other. Oh, what a joy that is. And so it's important to honour the devoted. I want to finish on this 
final sub point here under devotion. And this is my heart. So if you've missed everything else, this is the one I want you to hear today. Epaphroditus displays something that we need to understand. The surpassing value of serving Christ. We say that again. The surpassing value of serving Christ. The Bible says that he risked his life. Those words are found nowhere else in the whole Bible. That Greek set of words there, used nowhere else in the whole Bible. He risked his life in the cause of Christ. The literal meaning is this. Epaphroditus completely disregarded the value of his own life so long as the service for Christ was accomplished. This is a devoted servant. This is a man who did not count his own life dear to himself. I just want to share my heart for a moment before we finish. I have had the privilege, and it has been a privilege, it's taught me much. I've had the privilege of uh, serving in many capacities over my life, uh, even though at 31, uh, some of you I'm sure look on me as very, very young and that's fine. Um, but the Lord has taken me on many, many journeys over the last 15 years. Uh, some of them have included uh, some great high-paying jobs, uh, huge management opportunities. Um, I was working this week uh, somewhere and uh, a particular person came into the shop where I was who knew me 15 years ago and was amazed at what I was doing because his thoughts were, well, I thought you would be a national sales manager somewhere uh, because of the journey that the Lord has taken me on. And all of those things have been great fun. I've enjoyed the, the opportunities to lead people in a retail environment. Uh, I've, opportunity, I've, I've appreciated opportunities where there's been plenty of money available. Uh, I've also appreciated the opportunities where there's been almost none. But let me say this categorically. I know this is the heart of Ivor and others as well. There is nothing. There is nothing in all the world like serving Christ. Nothing. Nothing is so soul-satisfying. Nothing is so eternally rewarding than being able to say, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. And what I'm not saying is that every one of us needs to now just go and lose our jobs in order to go and serve full-time. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is don't treat your secular job or your other job as your primary job. That's not the primary job. Your primary job is as a servant of Jesus Christ and it has far surpassing value in the life of a Christian. That is the greatest thing in all the world to be a child of the King and to serve Him. And I hope that the zeal and the passion that I have towards this rubs off on each of us because this is the greatest thing in all the world that we might have a privilege of being His servant in this life. We've only got this one life to offer. Only this one life to offer till soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. My home is up there beyond the blue. I'm just passing through, the song says. We've got to remember, this is the primary purpose. Um, Just because you work in a cafe or a retail place or because you spend a lot of time mowing the lawns or you're looking after your your business or your, your factories or your gardens or whatever, they are all secondary. That is not primary. The surpassing value of serving Christ. I just I cannot believe that God in His sovereignty would want to use us. It makes no sense to me. 
because he has all power and yet he has delegated to us this incredible opportunity to serve him. The king of all kings, the the God of all gods wants to use my life. What an incredible thought. I understand Isaiah completely when he says, woe is me. Woe is me because when I really get a taste of who this God is and that he wants to use my life like Epaphroditus did, we say, wow, this is an amazing thought, the surpassing value of serving him. Wow. And I think it was David Livingston who said, if uh, uh, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honour, how could the commission by a heavenly king be considered just something that we have to do? How is that possible? How is it that, well, you know what, uh, an earthly king, he says, yeah, I'll do that. And then the heavenly king says, go do this. And we say, I'm sorry, I'm busy. Don't want to do that. Oh, it is such a privilege. You know what happened with uh, Epaphroditus and Paul? This is what I believe as we close. I told you before, I don't think Paul and Epaphroditus had ever met. Maybe they did, but I don't think so. But here's what I think happened with Paul and Epaphroditus. In Acts 20 and verse 24, this is what Paul says to the the Ephesian elders at Miletus. He says, but I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Again, he says, I do not account my life of any value. Paul says in Philippians chapter one and verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We all know those verses. And yet Paul and Epaphroditus come together. And what do we note about Epaphroditus? He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Do you think Paul and Epaphroditus had a little bit in common? I think that when they came together and Paul recognised how much this guy had been involved and what had happened and now he's risking his life for the service of Christ, I think that these two became incredible friends. I think that during the portion of his illness there in Rome, suddenly these two just clicked. I don't know about you if you've ever met someone you've just clicked with. I reckon these two clicked because they both had the same heart. They both had the same goal. My life counts as nothing so long as I'm serving Christ. We've looked at three remarkable servants. Paul was a man with eternity in view. Remember that? Joy was the product of his eternal vision. Do you have eternity in view? Timothy was a faithful friend and a spiritual servant. A man after Paul's heart. He was a spiritual soulmate. He was a man of contrast. He was a man of character. He was a man who was prepared to do anything for the cause of Christ. And then we looked at Epaphroditus these last three times. Paul's brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, Philippians messenger and minister. Great desire for the church, genuine distress for their concerns and total devotion to the work of Christ. To these men, to their lives, to their examples, reflect in our lives. I trust that the journey into these lives have challenged us. I trust that it has caused you to take inventory of your own walk with the Lord. And particularly today as we look at this man, Epaphroditus, as a devoted servant. Father, thank you for strengthening us today as we've looked at your word. Thank you for giving us concentration. Thank you for these three incredible testimonials of men who've served you faithfully for Paul and for Timothy and for Epaphroditus. We pray that each of these names and their lives uh, would remain within our hearts as we would seek to uh, replicate in our own life 
the way in which they've served you. Uh, Lord, thank you that it is a great privilege to be able to be in your service, uh, not something to take lightly, not something that we just uh, we think about occasionally, but Lord, that you would uh, not only give us the Holy Spirit, but also to empower us to serve you, uh, where you could do it all by yourself, you don't need us at all, and yet you've chosen to use us. The surpassing value of serving Christ, may that be something we really understand today and that we would go about uh, in such a way that we would see the value of it and live it uh, for the cause of Jesus Christ, even to the point of risking our lives as you would see fit to call us to if that is what you'd have. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.